All right, we are starting back, and this time we're going to be talking about the subject of Catholicism. Uh, is the Catholic Church genuinely Christian? And I want to spend some time examining 14 major differences between Catholics and Protestants. I am borrowing is not even the right word. I am uh, strongly borrowing a lot of what I'm going to say from Wayne Grudem and his systematic theology. Also, um, I'm getting help from others as well, including Greg Allison from Southern Seminary. Just to start off, it's important to say uh, some, some obvious agreement. It's important to note that Catholics and Protestants agree on the doctrines of the Trinity, three persons, one God, and the hypostatic union, that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. This is a very significant point of agreement. They, they also agree on the sinless life, the substitutionary or penal death of Christ, and the bodily, physical resurrection and ascension of Jesus. He's coming again to judge the world in righteousness. I'm about to step off the stage here. Uh, they believe that Jesus is going to judge the world, that there is a new creation, that there's hell, eternal conscious torment, and on and on. So there, there's a lot of areas of, of important agreement, but the areas of disagreement are not unimportant at all. They're, they're very significant. I think you'll see that as we walk through this. Greg Allison puts it like this. So he argues that the, the, the theology that undergirds all the specific differences that are, exist between Protestant and Catholic theology come down to, he, he kind of frames it in two basic ways. You've got the nature-grace interdependence and the Christ-church interconnection. And he's going to argue that this uh, explains a lot of the fundamental differences, maybe the majority of the fundamental differences between uh, Catholics and Protestants. And I think that there is something really to be said here. So this is a little confusing. See if this makes sense. The nature-grace interdependence. According to Roman Catholic theology, nature and grace are, by God's design, interdependent. Nature is capable of receiving and transmitting grace, and grace must be concretely communicated by nature. Uh, for example, water in the realm of nature, water is, so you, you've got, uh, I've got a water bottle right here. We've got water in here. You can have oil. You can have um, uh, bread and wine and on and on. God, uh, God communicates His grace through physical objects in nature. This is a fundamental distinction, a fundamental worldview distinction between Protestant theology uh, and, and Catholic theology, or evangelical theology and Catholic theology. It's the sacramental system. And the idea is that God's grace can be transferred to you through nature, through physical objects that act as conduits carrying God's grace literally onto or into your body. And that's how God's grace is, is communicated so frequently in Catholic teaching. This is a fundamental difference in worldview. So the idea, for instance, is take water. Water can be consecrated uh, by a bishop or a priest or something of that nature in the realm of nature, and that, that water now receives and communicates God's actual grace, literally through the water, through, through, through nature. It's, it's the nature-grace interdependence. Grace is transferred through natural objects in this physical world. So, for example, water in the realm of nature is capable of receiving and communicating grace when consecrated by a Catholic bishop. It is used for baptism. This sacrament in the realm of grace cleanses an infant from original sin, regenerates and incorporates him or her into Christ and his church. Then this nature-grace interdependence is the first foundation of Catholic theology. So you can see here, this is going to be a fundamental thing, is that God's grace is transferred through natural physical objects. At, 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 at confirmation, um, uh, holy oil is used and put on your forehead, I think often as a little cross right here on your forehead, and God's grace is, is committed to you. In the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the bread and wine communicate and transfer God's grace into the individual person, and on it goes. 
Now, what is the Christ church interdependence or interconnection? The Christ church interconnection is this. There are two manifestations of the principle of incarnation, a pattern with which God created the world so that grace and nature would be interdependent. The first manifestation is the incarnation of the Son of God as Jesus Christ, which is what Christmas is all about, who mediated grace to nature. So, incarnation is grace coming into nature. God, who is a gracious God existing as spirit in eternity, takes on a physical body in the created realm, and he communicates grace through nature. Then they argue the second manifestation is the Roman Catholic Church, which as the uh, the prolongation, prolongation of the incarnation of Christ continues to mediate grace to nature. So now the Catholic Church, which is the body of Christ on earth, and they take this much further than a Protestant would, argue that this is still a continuation or manifestation of the incarnation in some sense, and it's a a prolonging of the incarnation of Christ, and it is through the church now that God communicates grace to nature. The church is the continuation of God the Son incarnate being the whole Christ, deity, humanity, and body. Now, this is Allison continuing. According, accordingly, the Roman Catholic Church acts as another or second person of Christ. You hear this? The Catholic Church acts as another person of Christ or a second person of Christ, mediating between the two realms of nature and grace. Nature, being open to grace, receives the grace mediated to it by the church. Grace, which must be tangible and concrete, think physical objects, is communicated through elements of nature that are consecrated by the church. For example, a Catholic bishop consecrates oil in the realm of nature and employs it for the sacraments of confirmation and holy orders. Mediating these sacraments in the place of Christ, the church tangibly and concretely confers grace upon those being confirmed and those entering the priesthood. This Christ-church interconnection is the second foundation of Catholic theology. So if you, if you can grasp just this opening idea, a lot of what we're going to unpack over the next hour or so is going to begin making a lot more sense. Lord willing, we'll, we'll unpack that for the next hour. So what you see here is, again, so get this. God wants to give His grace to His people. According to Catholic theology, He gives His grace through water or oil or bread and wine. God communicates His grace through these physical objects, and you eat them or you have it put up, up, sprinkled on your head or put on your forehead or whatever it may be, but, but they, they touch your body and they communicate God's grace to you. But since Jesus is not on the earth today to mediate his grace like he did in his incarnation, he now has his prolonged incarnation, the church, led by the vicar of Christ on earth, which is the Pope. Uh, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, now is the one with the authority and the ability to continue uh, overseeing and, and, and bringing about the communication of God's grace through nature. In other words, it's the Catholic Church that brings us a sacramental system. It's the Catholic Church that mediates grace through nature. It's the priest, it's the bishop that makes the holy water do what it does. It's the, uh, they would say God working through them, but it's, it's the human instrument of the bishop or the priest who is doing these things and God working through them. And so if you, if you lose the sacramental system, which is grace through nature led by the church, you're going to miss out on Catholic theology altogether. This is off a Catholic website. Here are the seven sacraments of the church. Sacraments of Christian initiation, baptism. Normally that will be to an infant, although if you grew up not in a Catholic church and were not baptized in a, in a Catholic church as an infant, you would be baptized as, a, as an adult or as a, you know, as, a, as a professing Christian later. But you've got baptism, you've got confirmation, you've got Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Sacraments of healing, you've got penance and reconciliation. You've got the anointing of the sick, which they claim is based on James 5. And then the sacraments of service, matrimony and uh, holy orders. And these are the sacraments through which the church runs. This is the sacramental system. This is basically the heart and soul of Catholic theology. They they might object to me saying it that way, but this is how Catholic theology works. It's the sacramental system. 
to just jump ahead here, trying to give a quick overview. When, when, when Protestants say that Catholics teach uh, in salvation by faith plus works, Catholics will object to this. They will say, we do not believe in salvation by works. They say, we, we, don't, we, we don't believe that. That's not what we teach. But uh, they would say that we, we, that's, that's not what we say. But we would argue that this system, this sacramental system, is a kind of work. And it's a way in which you obtain and upkeep your justification and your right standing with God. As you continue to take in grace over the long haul, you, must, you are required to continue through the sacramental system in order to, be, to maintain your justification before God. And so it is, it is not wrong to say this is faith plus works, but a Catholic will object to that saying that the sacramental system is a salvation by grace system. You need faith and grace in order to participate in this system, and it's a gracious system. But it still involves you doing one thing after another in order to get and maintain justification. So uh, it is a kind of works salvation, although, although Catholics will object to me saying it that way. Uh, I'm borrowing some freeze frames here from American Gospel Part 1. In the Roman Catholic plan of salvation, you're born dead in original sin, and through the waters of baptism— what is conferred upon you? Justification is conferred upon you. Regeneration, you're born again through the waters of baptism and original sin is washed away and the child enters a state of grace. And then as the child goes forward, the child could commit venial or mortal sins. Venial sins do not uh, ultimately destroy your right standing with God, but mortal sins do if you commit a mortal sin. Suicide is a mortal sin, which is why if you commit suicide and you immediately die, you go straight to hell because you cannot be saved because the last act you did was a mortal sin that forfeits your right standing with God. Uh, murder is, 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 a, is a mortal sin. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a whole batch of, of serious, they would call serious sins, mortal sins that, that lose your right standing with God that has to be gotten back through the sacramental system. And you are always in danger in Catholic theology of losing your salvation or of not having done enough. Those are, those are just the earmarks of Catholic theology. You can listen to Catholic answers in different places, and you can go look stuff up online. And in Catholic theology, they think that the Protestant doctrine of eternal security absolutely is fatal to Christian, uh, to Christian obedience. They think, well, once you know you're saved, then why would you obey? And you're going to become lackadaisical and not really care about your holiness. No, if you know that eternal life's at stake, it's going to really push you forward in this system. And so uh, very, very much an insecure system when it comes to salvation before God. Uh, if after mortal sin, you then do penance and the works of sacrament, you can begin working yourself back up. And that is how uh, this system is run. Again, the five solas of the Reformation became known as what they were because of how glorious they were, but also how antithetical they were to Catholic theology. So you've got salvation by, not by grace, but by grace alone. Justification, not by faith plus sacraments, but faith alone. Uh, we, it is through Christ alone, not through any other mediators or anyone else who, who is going to be in a saving place, only Christ Scripture alone, no sacred tradition that's equal to Scripture, no Pope speaking infallibly that's equal to Scripture, none of that. It's Scripture alone, and that, that is ultimately to protect the glory of God alone. And so this is the heart and soul of Protestant theology, and you can see here, as the American Gospel shows us, when it comes to Catholic theology, it's grace plus merit. It is faith plus the works of the sacramental system. It's Christ plus other mediators, other mediators like Mary and other deceased saints and perhaps canonized saints, things of that nature. It's Scripture plus tradition and this, the Pope speaking ex cathedra infallibly from his chair. And it's the, it's, it's, it's the glory of God and also the glory of Mary and other saints, even though Catholics may object to that. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. So it's important to note 
as, we, as we're kind of getting going here, that while not all who call themselves Catholic hold to all of what Rome teaches, we must assess Roman Catholic teaching not by what any particular Catholic says, but by what the Roman Catholic Church officially teaches. So you've got, you've got what any particular Catholic says, and then you've got what Rome officially teaches, and we must distinguish these things. I don't doubt that there are people who call themselves Catholic who don't actually believe in the Catholic theology and Catholic sacramental system and Mariology and all these things. They don't believe in those things. They actually trust in Christ for, for, by grace through, alone, through faith alone, but they might call themselves Catholics because they're confused or they don't really know Catholic theology. That may be true. Let me say, if that's you listening, then I would, I would urge you to flee from the Catholic Church. If you believe that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by the works of the sacramental system, and if you believe that not Mary or any other uh, person is a mediator for you or gets you closer to God or whatever it may be, and you don't believe in purgatory, you don't believe in indulgences, you don't believe in all these things, you don't think Scripture is equal to, uh, to tr tradition, then you need, you need to obey Jesus and get out of, a, of an institution that teaches a false gospel. And you need to get to a church where the true gospel is proclaimed, and you need to stop calling yourself capital C Catholic. Uh, in the sense of the Roman Catholic Church. But I'm not going to assess Catholicism by what any particular Catholic friend of yours might say or by, by what some Catholic family that you know says because there's confusion, there's ignorance, there's also people who know what the Bible says versus the Catholic Church and they disagree with the Catholic Church official teaching. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the official Roman Catholic teaching. That's what we are to assess. What else should we assess? And we're going to use, as, as is often the case, the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, I've got two different copies of the Catechism of the Catholic Church with me here today. I've got the bigger one and I've got the pocket-sized one. Even the pocket-sized one's pretty big. Th this was put out, uh, started in the 80s, came out in 92, I believe. Pope John Paul II commissioned this particular book, and it is a tremendously helpful resource. I just have to tell you, I, I noticed today, I have my I have my Ligonier Ministries 500 Years of the Reformation uh, bookmark in the middle in the middle of my Catholic catechism. I don't know if that's if that's a, if that's what they want. Okay, so the Catechism of the Catholic Church extremely important. Uh, it was commissioned by the Pope, put together by his bishops and the magisterium. It has official Pope endorsement. In fact, I took a picture from my book, and I, I've got it here on the screen. This is straight out of the uh, kind of introduction to it, written by Pope John Paul II in the early 90s. I think it was 1992. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, which I approved, so he, this is the, pap the papacy approved it, and the publication for which I today order, now look at this, by virtue of my apostolic authority. Wow. Is a statement of the church's faith and of Catholic doc doctrine attested to or illuminated by sacred scripture, the apostolic tradition, and the church's magisterium. Already we see the differences of authority. They believe in sacred scripture, that's true, but they also believe in apostolic tradition and the church's magisterium, which is basically the pope and his collection of leaders. So they have a three-legged stool of authority, Bible, sacred apostolic tradition, as they call it, and the church's magisterium, which is basically the pope and, his, uh, and other leaders. They have a three-legged stool of authority. We have a one-legged stool, sola scriptura. This is going to be a fundamental difference. It, when, when, I've been in hours of discussions with Catholics over the years, and when we get into discussions, what happens? Inevitably, it comes back to sacred tradition says this. I say, I don't really care that much what sacred tradition so-called says. I care what the Scripture says. And so ultimately, they say, yeah, the Bible doesn't address this. I know this isn't in the Bible, but sacred tradition says it. The magisterium says it. Therefore, we know it's true. I'm going, no, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. We cannot have these other two uh, sources vying for authority. He continues, the Pope says, I declare it to be, now he's talking about this book, the, the Catholic Catechism. I declare it to be 
a sure norm for teaching the faith, and thus a valid and legitimate instrument for ecclesial communion. So in other words, this is a sure norm for the teaching of the faith. They actually put that quote on the cover of the, the pocket edition, a sure norm for teaching of the faith, Pope John Paul II. Wow. So if we were to assess Catholic theology, I, I can't ultimately assess it by what my neighbor friend who's a Catholic says. I have to say what the Pope and what the magisterium says is official teaching of the church, which is this catechism. Uh, you're not going to find a much better uh, compilation of Catholic teaching. Look here, the, the approval and publication of the catechism of the Catholic Church represents a service with the successor of Peter. Wow. So he's already mentioned apostolic authority. Now he's mentioning it again. He calls himself the successor of Peter. He has, this, he has the apostolic authority on par with Peter the apostle. What a claim for yourself. Wishes to offer to the Holy Catholic Church, to all the particular churches in peace and communion with the apostolic see. Toward the end of this introduction, before his signature, he says this, at the conclusion of this document, I present the catechism of the Catholic Church. And then he prays to Mary. I beseech the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Incarnate Word and Mother of the Church, to support with her powerful intercession. Wow. The catechetical work of the entire church on every level at this time when she is called to a new effort of evangelization. And then October 11, 1992, uh, the 30th anniversary of the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council in the 14th year of my uh, pontificate, John Paul II. So, he, 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 he prays to Mary right here. I beseech the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Incarnate Word, Mother of the Church, to support with her powerful intercession, the catechetical work. Intercede for us, Mary. He's praying to Mary and asking her to intercede for his work. Does that sound like he's putting Mary in the place of Jesus to some degree? Absolutely he is. We're never commanded to pray to deceased saints. In fact, we're commanded against it. Necromancy, spiritism, those are capital offenses in the Old Testament. You are not meant to talk to the dead. You're meant to talk to the living one, Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, praying in his name and even praying to him, as we see in the Bible. Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord three times to remove the thorn from his flesh. Uh, Stephen looks up, says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Yeah, we can pray to Jesus because he is part of the triune God. But we don't pray to Mary, our other deceased saints. And we certainly don't ask them to intercede for us in heaven. So, Again, I'm borrowing much of what's coming here with these points from Grudem's second edition of his Systematic Theology and also from some notes of his I saw online that's connected to all this stuff. So we want to walk through differences. Fourteen differences. We'll see how far we get today. Number one, authority. The infallible authority of the Pope and the church magisterium. This is what we've been talking about. Let's, let's go to the catechism that we just looked at being approved by the Pope. The Pope, Bishop of Rome and Peter's successor. What a title. So the Pope... Bishop of Rome, Peter's successor, by reason of his office as the vicar of Christ, that is the, the, the Christ figure on earth, the representative of Christ on earth, the one who carries out Christ's authority on earth. I mean, this is an amazing thing. So the Pope stands in the seat of Christ, stands in the stead of Christ. Since Christ is not here bodily, the Pope stands in his place as the vicar of Christ and has total, final, ultimate authority uh, over the church. I know a Catholic may dispute how I'm wording that, but the Pope has highest authority for sure over the church. And as pastor of the entire church has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church. I mean, that's what it says. Full, supreme, universal power of the whole church. I'm sorry. 
I'm an elder of a church. I'm a pastor of a church. I don't have full supreme and ultimate authority over our church, not even our little tiny church, uh, much less over the worldwide one point, however many billion Catholics who, who live on the earth. I'm sorry, this is the place of Christ. Only Christ has full supreme and universal power over the whole church. It is blasphemous to say that a pope has that power, especially our current pope, who, you know the old saying, is the, co- is the pope Catholic? You know, of course the pope's Catholic. I'm not sure the current Pope is Catholic because he's introducing, uh, you know, all kinds of crazy things into the, into the church. Okay. The college or body of bishops has no authority unless united with the Roman pontiff, Peter's successor, as its head. As such, this college has supreme and full authority over the universal church. You got that same kind of talk again. But this power cannot be exercised without the agreement of the Roman pontiff, of the Pope. Catholic Catechism. Thus, the pastoral duty of the magisterium is aimed at seeing to it that the people of God abides in the truth that liberates. To fulfill this service, Christ endowed the church's shepherds with the charism of infallibility in matters of faith and morals. So, do you see this? The magisterium, Christ has has endured the shepherds with infallibility in matters of faith and morals. So again, this is going to be a huge uh, uh, point of dispute, infallibility. Nothing outside of Scripture on earth is infallible right now. Um, The Lord Jesus is infallible, the triune God, but not any man on earth today. The exercise of this charism takes several forms. The Roman pontiff, head of the College of Bishops, enjoys this infallibility uh, by virtue of his office. So you've got the Pope enjoys this infallibility by virtue of his office. He can speak infallibly. When, as supreme pastor and teacher of all the faithful who confirms his brethren in the faith, he proclaims by a, defi- by a def- def- uh, definite act, sorry, uh, a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals. So when he proclaims by a definite act a doctrine pertaining to, p- pertaining to faith or morals, he can speak infallibly. I mean, that, that is absolutely amazing. Grudem's response, the apostles left their writings, the New Testament, to take their place as the governing authority of the church. Thus, the Bible, not any human person has authority, ultimate authority over the church. Let me mention here Michael Kruger, who's the president of RTS in Charlotte, I believe. Uh, Canon Revisited, uh, a great book. I have not read all of it, but the, but the beginning part, he deals excellently with Catholicism. And let me just quote here. I don't know if you can read this. Do- okay, so, so listen to this. The history of papal errors has been well documented. Examples include uh, Pope Liberius, I don't even know how to say their names, who signed an Arian confession condemning Athanasius, Pope Hun- uh, Honorius, who was condemned by the Third Council of Constantinople for heresy of being a a monothelite. Pope Boniface VIII, uh, who declared salvation to be impossible outside of Rome, but then then the opposite was taught by Vatican II, um, and on it goes. Look at the orange part here. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church attempts to mitigate some of these errors by suggesting that the Pope is infallible only in a very narrow sphere. That is when he speaks ex cathedra or from his chair. Since the Roman Catholic Church has no infallible list of ex-cathedra statements. However, one wonders how the church can know which statements of the Pope hold infallible authority and which do not. Do you see here the issue? They claim the Pope can speak infallibly, but then they say it's only when he's speaking ex-cathedra, when he's speaking from his chair, can he speak infallibly. But we don't actually have an infallible list of exactly when and who and what Pope spoke infallibly. So the Catholic Church has a sort of ability to pick and choose here which Popes they're going to follow when. How about these Popes when they spoke heretically? And how about these other, spokes, these other Popes when they supposedly spoke truthfully? Uh, he, he continues here, the Catholic Church then finds itself in the awkward place of having chided the Reformers for having a self-authenticating authority, Scripture alone, 
when all the while it has engaged in that very same activity by setting itself up as, the, as a self-authenticating authority, sola ecclesia, church alone, is what Kruger calls it. On the Catholic model, the Scripture's own claims should not be received on their own authority, but apparently the church's own claims should be received on their own authority. The Roman Catholic Church, functionally speaking, is committed to sola ecclesia. Now, I thought this was absolutely brilliant. I'd never really heard this very clearly before. Here's what he's saying. At the end of the day, who has final authority for how the church functions and how it works? It's the church alone. They, they claim to have a three-legged stool, the Bible, sacred tradition, and the, the infallible interpretation of the Bible and tradition by the Pope. But in reality, if the church chooses what's in the Bible— they seem to have a position of authority. If they choose which traditions are infallible, they have authority over that. And if they choose how to infallibly interpret the traditions or Scripture, they have total authority over that. So really, they claim to have three, three levels of authority, a three-legged three, three stool of authority. But really, it's the church alone that has authority, right? It's sola ecclesia. I mean, they wouldn't say that's what they believe, but that's what they do in function and in practice believe. Okay, so number two on authority. Uh, tradition as an authority alongside or equal to Scripture, as we are already getting at here. Here's what the Catholic Catechism says. In order that the full and living gospel might always be preserved in the church, the apostles left bishops as their successors. I mean, I, I could talk about this for, for a while, and I, I, I don't want to go on this rabbit trail. It's not really a rabbit trail, but just say this. The word bishop, episkopos in Greek, and the word elder, presbyteros in Greek, and what's the other one? The word pastor, which is poimenos or whatever it is in Greek. Those three words are used in Acts chapter 20. All three words are used. The verbal form of, uh, of pastor is used, shepherd. Uh, and you've got those, all those words are used to describe the elders at, at Ephesus, the Ephesian elders. Uh, in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, all three words are used to describe the pastoral office. Uh, and there's other texts. You, 1 Timothy 3 with Titus chapter 1, one text calls the leaders of the church um, elders, Presbyteroi. The other one calls them, um, I believe it calls them uh, bishops, of Ep episcopoi. The point is this. Those three words, elder, pastor, and shepherd, in other words, the, the word um, el elder, pastor, and um, bishop, episcopos, these three words all refer to the same office in the church, which is the pastor, the pastoral office. And the idea that a bishop or an episcopos an overseer, the ESV translates the word, the idea that a bishop is above the elders, and that you might have one bishop who oversees all the churches in a, in a general area, like, say, the city of Alexandria. It might have a bishop that oversaw all the churches there, or the bishop of Smyrna, or the bishop of Rome, or the bishop of wherever, Constantinople. You, have, you end up having one man who takes on the role bishop that has authority over all local churches in his jurisdiction and all, all the pastors. That is not a New Testament use of the word episkopos, bishop. It's not a New Testament use of the word. The, the word bishop, the word bishop uh, equals pastor and overseer, and these are all referring to elders, plural elders that led churches in the, in, the, in the early church, in the Bible. You have no example in the Bible of a bishop meaning, or episkopos meaning something above an elder. They, they're the same thing. And so what happened was in the early church, second century, the idea of a bishop started slipping up as a higher rank over elder and ended up being one person over a city. And what you ended up having was you ended up having bishops over major cities, like the ones I mentioned, Alexandria and, and all, all the different places, um, Constantinople, etc., Jerusalem, all these places. But you eventually had the bishop of Rome. And the bishop of Rome, you, you, once you have all these bishops of all these major cities, you want to find the bishop of bishops, the bishop over all the other bishops. Who's going to be the one who's at the very top of the pyramid? And what ended up happening was the bishop of Rome started being called the, the father or the Papa or the Pope. 
Pope means Papa, means Father. So the, the bishop that over all bishops became the, the Bishop of Rome. So all this system of Pope and bishops and the magisterium and the whole way it's structured is based on a misunderstanding of how the New Testament uses the word episkopos, uh, poimenos, and presbyteros, uh, overseer, elder, and a pastor. So just fundamentally, it's, it's, a, it's a false structure. Here, it's, the Catholic Catechism says sacred tradition and sacred scripture are bound closely together. As a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. So you see this? Not from the Holy Scriptures alone. Um, now look at this blue part. Both scripture, this is straight from the Catholic Catechism, both scripture and tradition, both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored, so Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. And there it is, equal. Once you make Scripture and tradition equal in authority and devotion, reverence, and whatnot, you're, you're going to head in a terrible direction. Who chooses which traditions are sacred with a capital T? Who chooses which ones are mistaken? Because tradition just means what early church fathers taught as traditions that are passed down, that are not necessarily in the Bible, and then someone has to choose which early church fathers and the traditions got things right about Mary or about the Lord's Supper or about the church structure or about whatever. Which one of them got something right? Which one got something wrong? And then the, 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 the uh, Catholic leadership just makes a decision. So it's, it's sola ecclesia. It's the church alone that's in authority here. Grudem says, the canon of Scripture is closed. No later teachings have authority equal to it. How about authority point number three? Seven books of the Apocrypha as part of the Bible. Seven books of the Apocrypha. I've got a Catholic Bible here. A little RSV Catholic edition is written there on the spine, and um, they've got the extra books in it. So here's from the Catholic Catechism. The Old Testament, it lists the books. It adds seven books. Tobit, Judith, after Esther, first and second Maccabees, the Wisdom of Solomon, Syriach, also known as Ecclesiasticus, and Baruch the name of Jeremiah's scribe. Those are all added um, to their Bible. The church, now, now here's the Catholic response. The church accepts and venerates as inspired the 46 books. See, we, we Protestants have 39 Old Testament books. They have 46 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New. Excuse me. So we have the same New Testament books, but they add seven uh, books to their Old Testament. What do we do about that? The Council of Trent was an official Catholic response to the Reformation in the 1500s. It met for over a decade, but in 1546, this is what they said. This is uh, Canons and Decrees of the Council of Trent, the fourth session, celebrated on the eighth day of the month of April, 1546. Here's the quote. But if anyone, this is straight from Catholic official teaching from the Council of Trent. It's never been rescinded. If it has, please let me know. But if anyone receives, receive not as sacred and canonical the said books entire with all their parts as they have been used to be read in the Catholic Church and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition. He's, this, is, this includes the Apocryphal books just mentioned. So if you, if you reject the Apocryphal books or any other book of the Old Testament and knowingly and deliberately condemn, contemn the traditions aforesaid, let him be anathema, let him be damned. So that's the, that's the official position. Grudem says the Apocrypha is not the Word of God and should not be part of the Bible. Not counted, it was not counted as such by first century Jews, by Jesus, by New Testament authors, or by the Roman Catholic Church officially until 1546. Uh, I'll put this up on the screen here. You can see, I don't know if you can read any of that. You probably cannot read that. 
uh, from, from the screen. So over here, we've got the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Bible, the TNK. T stands for Torah, N, T-N-K. N stands for Nevi'im, which is the prophets. The K stands for Ketuvim, which is the writing, starting with the most prominent book of Psalms. This is the Protestant Old Testament. The law, the historical books, the wisdom books, the prophets. Okay, if you look, you'll notice that they're the exact same books. <clears throat> the exact same books. Um, we split Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles into two books. They take the 12 minor prophets and just call it the book of the 12. We, we have 12 individual prophets, but, and they're not in the same order. We could talk about why. It's because when the Bible is translated into Greek, they change the order of the books. That's for another day. But um, I wish we had kept the order of the Tanakh, personally. But it's the same books. Protestant Bible, the, the Hebrew Bible, Tanakh, same books. When Jesus quotes the Bible in Luke 24, 44, he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms will be fulfilled, has been fulfilled, will be fulfilled. So Jesus splits his Bible up into three parts. The law of Moses, which corresponds to the Torah, books of Moses, the prophets, which correspond with the Nevi'im, the, the former and latter prophets, and then the Psalms, which corresponds to the writings with the first and most prominent book being the Psalms. Jesus says the Bible is the Tanakh. No apocryphal books are in the Tanakh. No apocryphal books are included. And the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, as you probably know, like 600 plus times. It's an extraordinary number of times that the New Testament just quote, as the Scripture said, as the Holy Spirit said through David, as the Holy Spirit says to the prophet, as etc. Out of the hundreds of times the New Testament quotes the Old Testament as Scripture, how many times do the apocryphal books in the Catholic Bible get quoted in the New Testament? How many times does 1 Maccabees get quoted in the New Testament, or 2 Maccabees, or Tobit, or Judith, or Ecclesiasticus, or whatever, Baruch? Zero. Zero times. It's amazing. Zero times. So the New Testament authors follow Jesus in only accepting the canonical bio, uh, the books of the, of, the, of the Hebrew Bible and of the Protestant Old Testament. There are no, there's no evidence at all for the inclusion of the apocryphal books. So that's another difference in our authority is they have a different set of books than we do. They have extra books. Now, when it comes to God, worship, and prayer, prayer should be made, according to Catholic theology, to Mary and other saints. We saw an example of that. Let's look at the Catholic Catechism. Beginning with Mary's unique cooperation with the working of the Holy Spirit, the churches develop their prayer to the Holy Mother of God. That's just incredible stuff right there. Prayer to the Holy Mother of God. In countless hymns and antiphons expressing this prayer, two movements usually alternate with one another. The second entrusts the supplications and praises of the children of God to the Mother of Jesus, because the, she now knows the humanity which in her Son, the Son of God, espoused. Mary is the perfect prayer, the one who prays, a figure of the church. When, when we pray to her, so yes, yes, they are taught to pray to Mary. When we pray to her, we are adhering with her to the plan of the Father. We can pray with and to her. The prayer of the church is sustained by the prayer of Mary and united, uh, and united in hope. So th that's amazing. The prayer of the church is sustained by Mary and united in hope. Grudem says, no, we should pray to God alone through Christ alone. Now, I've, I've had Catholics say to me, have you ever asked a living saint to pray for you, like your friend, parents, somebody? Oh, yeah, sure, of course, we've all done that. Well, so that's what we do. We're not really praying to them as if they're a God. We're simply asking the deceased saint in heaven to pray for us, just like you would ask a saint on earth to pray for you. And um, that may sound like, oh, okay, that, that doesn't sound so bad. Old Testament still says trying to communicate in any way with the dead is called spiritism, 
necro uh, necromancy like don't capital punishment do not try to communicate with the dead in any way any anybody who's died so number one it's ruled out by scripture in the strongest terms number two if imagine this right now how many people do you think are praying to mary hail mary full of grace the, I, I would not doubt that there are what uh, millions a million people probably right now saying a hail mary or praying to mary very possibly a million people right now are praying to mary how knowledgeable would you have to be as a finite human being to hear the prayers of a million people simultaneously and to be able to answer all of them simultaneously? You would have to be more than a human. You'd have to be a divine being. You'd have to be God. You'd have to be omniscient. You'd have to be all-knowing in order to take in a, a million prayers at once and be able to respond to and answer all of them. Mary, when everyone's praying to Mary, we're violating the Bible that says don't talk to the dead. And number two, we are also violating the Bible that says don't treat people as gods. Pray only to God. How about the veneration of Mary? Catholics will say we do not worship Mary. Uh, that, is, that, is, that, is a, that is a libel. <laughs> that is false speech. We don't worship Mary. We venerate Mary. And I'd say, okay. But if you just changing the vocabulary word doesn't necessarily change what you're doing. If you are praying to someone who is in heaven, if you are asking that person to intercede for you on heaven, if you believe that person is sinless and a co-redeemer, all these different things, you're treating that person as a divine figure. You are doing what is called worship, even if you don't acknowledge it. Catechism says this, quote, the church's devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic to Christian worship. The church's devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic to Christian worship. The church rightly honors the Blessed Virgin with special devotion. Okay, don't call it worship, call it special devotion. This sounds like worship. This very special devotion differs essentially from the adoration which is given to the incarnate Word and equally to the Father and the Holy Spirit and greatly fosters this adoration. So they say it's different, but I'm saying uh, it looks like a kind of worship to me. Grudem says we should worship only God, not any created being. Now, how about Christ's redemptive work? Mary is seen as a co-mediatrix or a co-redemptrix with Christ in Catholic theology. I'm not making that up. Catholic Catechism says this, in a holy singular way, she cooperated by her obedience, faith, hope, and burning charity in the Savior's work of restoring supernatural life to souls. For this reason, she is a mother to us in the order of grace. This motherhood of Mary in the order of grace continues uninterruptedly from the consent which she loyally gave to the at the Annunciation and which she sustained without wavering beneath the cross until the eternal fulfillment of all the elect. Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside the saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Oh my goodness. So look at this. She has a saving office, and by her manifold intercession, she continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. You're, you're telling me she's not being put in the position of God in any sense here? Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles of advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix. I don't want to be unkind, but I want to be truthful. That's blasphemous. To call Mary the advocate and the helper. Those are words we translate into English from the word paraclete. Jesus is called the paraclete, 1 John 2, uh, the advocate before the Father, the righteous one. He's the paraclete. The Holy Spirit, the comforter, the encourager, the counselor, the helper, he's called the paraclete. And here Mary is being called the advocate, the helper. Those are the same words that we translate the Greek word paraclete from. A benefactress and a mediatrix. She's a mediator. I I'm sorry. You can call this venerating. This is worshiping. This is putting Mary uh, far too high, far higher than the Scripture would ever indicate that Mary should be raised. This is blasphemous. 
This is, this is serious false teaching. Grudem responds, salvation is earned for us by Christ alone. And the New Testament is saturated with praise to Christ alone. Again, this is, this is where the differences are. We are sola Christa, sola Christus, not to marry for our salvation. It should also be noted that in Catholic doctrine, they teach that Mary remained a virgin throughout her life, even while married to Joseph, which again, the Bible indicates the exact opposite. Number two, Mary never sinned. It's not in the Bible. That's Catholic tradition. Number three, Mary was taken body and soul into heaven at the end of her life. It's not clear whether she died and was taken body and soul into heaven or whether she, almost like Elijah, was taken straight to heaven without dying, although I think some Catholics tend toward the idea that she died and was immediately taken to heaven. But because she lived a sinless life, God did not let her body see decomposition. Uh, I went on Catholic Answers, which is uh, catholic.com, I think it is. And um, did Mary and Joseph ever have conjugal relations? Did they ever have a sexual relationship? I mean, they were married for presumably at least, you know, the first 13 years of Jesus's life or 12, 13 years of Jesus's life. They were, they were, for decades, they were married, very likely. Here's the answer. In early Christian tradition, uh, yeah, so he, they mentioned early church fathers who claim Mary as a, as a, a perpetual virgin without controversy. The Council of uh, Lateran declared Mary was Mary conceived without any uh, detriment to her virginity, while, which remained inviolate even after his birth. The Second Council of Constantinople referred to Mary as ever virgin, and Pope Pius the Twelfth's infallible definition of the assumption of Mary refers to Mary as ever virgin. Problems with that would be this: Matthew one Christmas story. He took her as his wife, but knew Joseph knew Mary not until she had given birth. Until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. I mean, I know the word until doesn't have to mean, well, afterwards, then he did. But in this context, it's crystal clear what that means. He did not sleep with her until she gave birth, and then he did. They, they would have slept together, just like 1 Corinthians 7 says. A husband and wife should have conjugal relations on a regular basis. That's 1 Corinthians 7, and I'm sure Joseph and Mary were obedient to that. Matthew 13, 55. They, the crowd says, is not this Jesus, the carpenter's son? Is not this his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So how does Jesus have brothers? And the Catholic Church will bend over backwards trying to get around this. They'll say, oh, they, these are cousins. The word adelphois doesn't, ref, it's not referring to cousins. I mean, I understand. The word adelphois can refer to, it normally refers to your biological sibling. It can refer to people from a whole tribe together. But in this context, he's not referring to Jewish people because everyone around him was Jewish. <laughs> he's not referring to the tribe of Judah or the Israelites because everyone there is an Israelite or except for a few Roman soldiers, perhaps. No, when he says here, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas are your adelphoi, he's, he means they're your siblings, your, your brothers. Obviously, he says here, your mother Mary is here and your brothers, your adelphoi, James and etc. Judas would later write the book of Jude. James would later write the New Testament book of James. But these are Jesus' siblings. Where do they come from? Some people I've even heard say maybe Joseph had a previous marriage before he married Mary, and he had these sons through that previous marriage, and that wife died, and then he married Mary, but Mary and him never slept together, and Mary never had another child other than Jesus, and therefore these are Jesus' brothers through Joseph's previous marriage. That is made up out of whole cloth. The obvious and natural reading of these texts is that these are the product of a union, a sexual union between Joseph and Mary in the covenant of marriage after the birth of Jesus. These would have been Jesus's younger half-brothers. Matthew 12, 46. While he, Jesus, was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside speaking to him. Galatians 1, 19, Paul says, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Here it has to mean his sibling. Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Here again, it has to mean his siblings. 
um, Catholic News Agency, their, their website, uh, they talk about the Immaculate Conception of Mary. I talked about her being sinless. When you hear Immaculate Conception, you might be tempted to think that refers to the virgin birth. It does not. It refers to Mary's conception of her and her mother. The Catholic Church tells us through sacred tradition, so-called, that her mother's name was Saint Anne. We actually have no idea what her mother was named because the Bible does not tell us. But Catholics say Mary's mother was Saint Anne, and Mary was conceived miraculously in Saint Anne's womb without original sin, and that Mary grew up without sin and never sinned. Does the Bible teach that? No. So it says here, the solemn definition of Mary's immaculate conception is like divine motherhood and perpetual virginity. It's all part of the Christological doctrine, but it was proclaimed as an independent doctrine by Pope Pius IX in his apostolic constitution, uh, Infallibilis Deus, December 8th, 1854. He, he, uh, it was officially declared there, Mar Mary never sinned. Look at Luke chapter 1, though, at the Christmas story. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, and he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Mary calls God her Savior. Who needs a Savior? People who sin. And the Catholic Church would say, no, no, God saved her by never letting her sin at all. He saved her by allowing her to be immaculately conceived in St. Anne's womb. And I'm saying, where are you getting that? Show me the Bible verse that says Mary was miraculously conceived without sin in St. Anne's womb. There is no Bible verse. So what do they do? They point to the magisterium and sacred tradition because the Bible doesn't teach that. It's not biblical. Uh, the assumption of her body into heaven. The Marian dogma was proclaimed, this is a Catholic website again. The Marian dogma was proclaimed by Pope Pius XII on November 1st, 1950. This is not long ago. This is what, 73 years ago uh, on uh, the encyclical, I can't say that word, Deus. Uh, and and it, it says here that uh, Mary, after finishing the course of her life on earth, was taken up in body and soul to heavenly glory. So the idea that, Jesus, that Mary, body and soul, was taken straight to heaven so her body would not de decay on the earth is taught here. And, and Catholics teach that that was probably at least one Catholic I read said that was taught because Mary never sinned. And so God took her body and soul to heaven, although the Bible, of course, never teaches that. And it's not true. Look at what they admit on this website. This dogma has no direct basis in Scripture. This dogma has no direct basis. It is not a scriptural document. It was nonetheless declared divinely revealed, meaning that it is contained implicitly in divine revelation. It may be understood as a logical conclusion of Mary's vocation on earth and the way she lived her life in union with God in her mission. The assumption may be seen as a consequence of divine motherhood, etc. This is nonsense. This is just uh, Catholic logic based on tradition and papal teaching. It is not, they admit, it's not in, it has no, ba no direct basis in Scripture. It's not in the Bible. So again, when you get into a debate with a Catholic, they're going to start saying things that are true that are not in the Bible. And I think actually contradict the Bible. I think the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which refers to everyone except Jesus, not everyone except Jesus and Mary. Uh, they keep elevating Mary into a semi-divine position, although they will, they will say that's not what they do. In practice, that is, that is what they do. Salvation, the saving power of the sacraments. We touched on this at the beginning, but let's look at the Catholic Catechism. Quote, celebrated worthily in faith, the sacraments confer the grace that they signify. So again, the physical objects transfer grace to you. Quote, they are efficacious because in them Christ himself is at work. It is he who baptizes when the priest baptizes, right? He who acts in his sacraments in order to communicate the grace that each sacrament signifies. So God's grace is transferred through the physical objects that are blessed by leaders in the church. Quote, this is the meaning of the church's affirmation that the sacraments act ex operato. 
literally by the very fact of the actions being performed. Notice the actions are effective in themselves because of what God does, i.e. by virtue of the saving work of Christ accomplished once and for all. Grudem's response, no works or sacraments can earn us merit before God or contribute to our salvation. Amen to that response. Salvation. Now, this is, again, not a small difference. Justification. This is one of the central issues, obviously, of the Reformation uh, that really began in 1517. Justification is by faith plus the sacraments. That is Catholic teaching. Now, if you call yourself a Catholic and you don't agree with that sentence, I would challenge you to say, I don't, I don't know that you understand the basic teaching of Catholic theology. This is what Catholic theology teaches. So when we say, as Protestants, that Catholics believe in justification by faith plus works, we are not speaking incorrectly. Because by works, we mean the sacraments. Catholics say, we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace, and they mean the grace given to them through the physical objects that they have to upkeep through many diligent efforts and works through their whole life in the sacramental system. So they say grace, we say works, but we're referring to the same thing. The sacramental system is a laborious task that runs through your entire life that involves you doing all kinds of things in order to receive and upkeep God's grace in your life. They call it not works, but gracious salvation. We say, no, you're, you are doing many, many works in order to get that grace and to receive it. So yes, you are saved by faith plus the works of the sacramental system. Catholic Catechism, to back this up, 1129 says this, the church affirms, again, this is the official teaching of the Catholic Church. The church affirms that for believers, look, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. The sacramental system of the new covenant, which is not taught in the Bible, it's taught in Catholic theology. It's not in the Bible, in the way the Catholics would argue. The church affirms that for the sacraments of the new covenant, that, that, that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. Faith plus works. It's faith plus the sacramental system. 1989 uh, says this, ju quote, justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. Again, there's a fundamental difference. They say that justification includes sanctification and the inward transformation of the man. We fundamentally reject the idea that, that uh, we, we, we would say, no, 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 no. Sanctification is not included within justification. And we, we don't say, part, I, I said that backwards, part of our justification includes our sanctification. No. No, that's not what we believe. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's what the Catholic Church teaches, that our sanctification is included within our justification, that the transformation of our life is part of our justification. This is from Catholic Answers at Catholic.com. Growth and righteousness. Look at this right here. In the first place, God doesn't simply declare us righteous. He also makes us righteous in justification. Thus, the Council of Trent defined justification as not only a remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inner man. So you see here exactly what I'm trying to argue for here. We would argue that justification is God simply declaring us righteous by faith. That's, that's the Protestant teaching. God declares us righteous by faith faith only. That's the Protestant view. But the Catholic view says, no, 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 no. God makes us righteous in justification. So that the, the transformation of the, of the person is part of our justification. And we would say, no, that is the very definition of legalism or works righteousness. As soon as you say that the transformation of your character becomes the grounding and part of the justification that you go through, you have now added works to faith. It's not faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. It is now a work system where our internal transformation and outward transformation is part of our justification. No, no, we are justified by simple faith alone. 
uh, we would say. So you go back to the Council of Trent. Here's a freeze frame from American Gospel of the Council of Trent meeting, which again, they convened like 18 times over however many, 16 or however many years. I don't know the exact numbers. But in, 15, uh, in the 1540s and 50s, they said this. This is Canon 9. If anyone saith that by faith alone, so this is, this is definitely responding to Luther. If anyone say that by, by faith alone, the ungodly or the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema, which means eternally condemned or damned. So this is a full-on rejection of justification by faith alone in official Catholic teaching from an official Catholic uh, council. And the Catholic Church has never rescinded it. The, 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 um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church quotes the Council of Trent repeatedly in the footnotes as they go through the doctrine of justification. When, when you look through, like I'm, I just flipped open, justification here is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. Footnote 39, you go to the bottom of the page, Council of Trent 1547, DS 1528. So, I mean, like, they are, they are still relying on this council's declaration in order to defend their view of justification. And that is blasphemous. That is a, they are literally anathematizing the true gospel. They are damning those who hold to justification by, by faith alone, the impious is justified, which is what anyone who's truly Protestant believes. It's astonishing. I mean, this is the Galatian heresy on steroids right here. All right, number nine. Regeneration and justification come through baptism. Again, we touched on this already. Quoting the Catholic Catechism, baptism is the first and chief sacrament of the forgiveness of sins and it unites us to Christ. The waters of baptism, either on a baby or an adult, but especially you can talk about a baby who doesn't even know anything yet, a newborn child. Forgiveness of sins happens and that child is united to Christ through the waters of baptism because grace is given through physical objects that are conferred through the church who died and rose and gives us the Holy Spirit. Wow. Look at this. Justification is conferred in baptism. Justification is, is conferred in baptism. The sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God who makes us inwardly just. You see our sanctification is part of our justification here. By the power of his mercy. So justification is conferred in baptism. You can lose it. You got to upkeep it. You got to be confirmed. You got to take Eucharist. You got to confess to the priest when necessary, on and on and on. You got to continue through the sacramental system. But you at least initially gain justification through the waters of baptism. An unbelieving infant who knows nothing yet receives the waters of baptism, the holy waters, transfer grace to the child. The child is born again, washed of original sin, and enters a state of justifying grace before God. That's justification by works. That's justification by works. Continuing, quote, through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ and are incorporated into the church and made sharers in her mission by baptism. Wow. Quote, children also have need of the new birth in baptism to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God. So children are, they need the, the baptism in order to be freed, to be transformed. That is not what the Bible teaches. Quote, by baptism, all sins are forgiven. By baptism, all sins are forgiven. Original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. In baptism, you're completely washed, spotless, and clean. Now, you can commit venial and mortal sins later that will collect on you and, and, and cause issues, but for the moment, all sin, original and personal, 
as well as all punishment for sin is washed away at the moment of baptism. Baptism not only purifies from all sins, but also makes the neophyte a new creature, an adopted son of God who has become a partaker of the divine nature, member of Christ and co-heir with him in the temple of the Holy Spirit. Grudem says, quote, baptism is only an outward physical symbol of an inward work of God, and like all other outward works, it does not save anyone. All right, continuing with salvation, transubstantiation. I hinted at it, but I haven't talked about it in any detail. Yes, the Catholic Church actually believes that the physical wafer or bread and the wine literally, physically become the body and blood of Christ. They would argue, using Aristotelian logic, that physical properties have accidentals and essentials. The accidentals are the outward, visible, physical properties. So uh, when I pick up this can of Dr. Pepper, uh, it, it tastes a certain way. It has certain qualities inside of it. And those are the accidentals, the way it tastes, the way it reacts, the way it looks, the way if you pour it out, the way all that stuff, that's the accidentals. The essentials are what it is at its essence as a physical object. And the Catholic Church borrows Aristotelian logic, or at least that's what they used to do. I assume they still do this. And what they say is this. When the priest says, this is my body, take it and eat. This is my blood, take it and drink. When he says those words, these objects are consecrated. And remember, Christ gives his grace through the church. So when the priest says the words of consecration, the physical objects are transformed. The bread maintains the outward properties of bread or a wafer, the outward physical properties. The, the wine continues to taste and look and act like wine with the accidentals, but the essentials, the essence of what it is physically has actually, not metaphorically, but literally changed into the actual body of Christ, the flesh of Christ, the actual blood of Christ. Like literally you are drinking blood. You are literally eating the skin, the flesh of Jesus in the Lord's table in a communion service in a mass. Here's the Catholic Catechism, quote, this is 1375. It is by the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in this sacrament. Literally, physically present through his actual physical body and blood. 1376, quote, by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body. So you see this, the, the, the bread becomes the body of Christ, substantially, literally, uh, of Christ our Lord, of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Trans to change substance, what it is made of. Transubstantiation, to change substance. It, it is a new thing. It is now the body and blood of Christ, although it maintains the outward properties of bread and wine. Continuing. Communion with the flesh of the risen Christ preserves increases and renews the life of grace received in baptism. Remember, part of the Christian life, big, the main part of the Christian life in many ways in Catholic theology is, is continuing to ingest and receive the grace of God so that you can maintain your right standing with God and deal with your venial sins and perhaps mortal sins and on and on and on so that you can have the least amount of punishment and purgatory as, you're, as you are cleansed of all your sin and make your way into heaven one day. So communion being taken week after week, perhaps even day after day, if you go to midweek masses and you could go to mass Monday through Friday and Sunday and all kinds of things, you're, you're, you're preserving, increasing, and renewing the life of grace received. You can see this emblem here. This is taken from the United States Confederate uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops in Washington, D.C. They quote Mark 14, 20, 22, take, this is my body. And they say the presence of Christ in the Eucharist is real, true, and substantial, physical. It's, it's, he's there. Jesus awaits us in this sacrament of love. He waits for us. He's there. Physically, it's called Eucharist. That's the word, the Greek word Euchariste, which means Thanksgiving, because it's an action of thanksgiving to God. The Eucharist makes present the one sacrifice of Christ the Savior. The Eucharist makes present the sacrifice of Christ literally, physically. This, this is 
this is, this is not good stuff. 1393 says this, the Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without at the same time cleansing us from past sins and preserving us from future sins. So how, what do you do? Because you're going to keep sinning as a Catholic. How do you get cleansed from past sins and how are you preserved from future sins? The Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without at the same time cleansing us from past sins and preserving us from future sins. You need the Eucharist to get rid of continuous past sins that keep cropping up every week and to be preserved from future sins. It's part of the salvation plan. It's part of the sacramental system. It is works, even though a Catholic will bristle at that word. The Eucharist strengthens our charity, and this living charity wipes away venial sins. Okay, so the Eucharist gives us charity, and charity wipes away venial sins. So I'm going to talk about this for a second here. 1395, by the same charity that enkindles in us, the Eucharist preserves us. The Eucharist preserves us from future mortal sins. Okay, let me try that again. From future mortal sins. So you've got two different kinds of sins. You've got venial sins and you've got mortal sins. Again, venial sins are the everyday sins. Gossip, lie, prideful thought, whatever it might be. Not loving God sufficiently, not praying sufficiently. Those are venial sins. They matter, they're sins, but they don't make you lose your justification. Mortal sins, you lose your justification. The Lord's Supper helps with all this. It helps get rid of, it helps wipe away venial sins by increasing charity, and it helps uh, preserve us from potentially committing future mortal sins. It's works. This is works. They will argue like this, the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body. He picks up the cup, drink all of it, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I remember at college, Bible college, there was a night where a priest came to debate uh, one of our professors, and um, it, it was a fun discussion, but the Catholic priest kept saying verses like this. He said, take, this is my body. Take, eat, this is my body. He said, Jesus could not have said it more clearly. The bread is his body. He doesn't say it represents his body. He doesn't say it's a metaphor for his body. He doesn't say it symbolizes his body. He doesn't say it should remind you of his body. He said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he picks up the cup and says, this is my blood. How much more clearly could Jesus have said it? But then Catholics especially, I mean, I've listened to Catholic answers a decent amount, even on the radio when I'm driving around. I'll just listen just because I'm curious how they're going to answer questions. I've looked at stuff on YouTube over the years, and I've talked to Catholics over the years taught Catholics over the years. Here, here's what uh, Jesus says in John 6. They love this text. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the bread in the wilderness. They died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Look at this. It gets even stronger. Catholics, this is their, this is their central text, I think, for their theology of the Lord's Supper. I mean, this is, this is as close as you get. John 6.52, John 6, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus, uh, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my body, my, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. They say, look, Jesus couldn't be more clear. You've got to actually eat his skin. You've got to actually drink his blood or you're not going to go to heaven. You've got to partake of the Lord's table. In the, in the, you've got to take of the Eucharist. And, and on, it, on it goes here. Uh, it says, you know, when, when his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And they say, that's what a Protestant would say. A Protestant hears Jesus talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And they say, this is a hard saying. I don't like it. I'm out of here. That's a bunch of Protestants walking away. Well, 
How would you respond to that text? Let's go back to John 6.35. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, can we agree on something here? Can we agree that the hunger and thirst referred to in this verse are not literal? Can we agree on that? So, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. First of all, coming to Jesus is not about walking towards him physically. It's about spiritually coming to him. And we will no longer hunger. This is clearly referring to our soul hunger. And we don't satisfy soul hunger with physical bread. We satisfy soul hunger with spiritual bread, metaphorical bread, right? And then here, whoever believes in me, and coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus, these are parallel, right? I mean, that's very, I think that's very obvious, but I'll just, I'll, I'll mark it here. To come to Jesus and to believe in Jesus, right? Same, same thing. Shall never thirst. This thirst is not literal, it's metaphorical thirst, right? It's metaphorical thirst, which means that the, the, the main metaphor up here of I'm the bread of life is non-literal. It's not literal. It's clearly a metaphor for spiritual hunger and spiritual satisfaction. Clearly. I mean, clearly. And this is the same chapter that leads us into the bread of life talk. In fact, what did Jesus just do at the beginning of John 6? He fed the 5,000 with literal bread and literal fish. And then he turns around and says, okay, now you want to make me king because I gave you a free meal. That meal was meant to symbolize something about me. I'm the bread of life. I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to give you. The physical bread is pointing to something spiritual. I can satisfy your soul. You've got to spiritually feast on me. Spiritually, you've got to eat my flesh, drink my blood. You've got to spiritually find satisfaction in me. Not literalistically, but metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking, that's what he meant. If you say, I don't, I don't buy that. Jesus said, I'm the bread. He meant I'm the bread. I say, okay. John 10, look at this. Jesus said to them, uh, Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I said, I am the door of the sheep. Are we supposed to take that literally? I am the door. A few verses later, he says it again, I'm the door. Do, do we take that metaphorically or literally? Of course you take that metaphorically. He's not talking about I've got a hinge over here on my shoulder and I've got a doorknob down here. No, he means metaphorically I'm a door, not literally. I'm the bread of life means metaphorically I will satisfy your soul. I am the door means I am the only access point between heaven and earth. You come through me, you meet the Father. You don't come through me, you crawl in some other way. You're a thief, you're a robber, you're not gonna meet the Father. You're not, you're not, you're not a true sheep right? And even in the context, the verse right before it, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. This is common throughout John's gospel. Jesus uses non-literal figures of speech, and the crowd is confused because they don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. If you don't believe me, look back a few chapters, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus says, I, I, I can give you living water. And then she says what? Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? She takes literally what is a metaphor, right? And she completely misses the meaning. That's the whole point. Jesus is speaking metaphorically of satisfying her soul. And she says, uh, you're, you don't have a deep enough bucket. You, don't, you haven't got nothing to draw water with. The well's deep. Where are you going to get that living water? She takes literally what Jesus meant metaphorically. This runs throughout John's gospel. John 3, the chapter before that. Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus takes literally. Can't spell. <laughs> Nicodemus takes literally what Jesus clearly meant metaphorically. The new birth is a metaphor for transformation of your heart and soul, new creation, being dead alive spiritually. But he takes it literally and misses the whole point. I think the Catholics have done the same thing that Nicodemus did that the woman at the well did initially. 
They look back at Jesus talking about feasting on his flesh and blood in the context of being the bread of life, and they take it literally. And the whole point in John's gospel is, I'm not a literal door. I'm not literal bread. I'm not literal water. I'm not literally going to give you a deep bucket for living water like a, a river. I'm not literally going to give you a new physical birth. These are metaphors. And to miss the metaphors, to miss the point. All right, we're getting somewhere here. We're getting close. Salvation, number 11, is purgatory. Purgatory. Haven't talked about that much. Purgatory uh, as a place of suffering before people can enter heaven. Catholic Catechism, quote, all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified. Oh my goodness. So anyone who is imperfectly purified at the moment of death, according to Catholic theology, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death, they undergo purification. So, that, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. See, in Catholic theology, your right standing with God is based on internal transformation, internal grace, grace transforming you, the purity of your character within, and therefore, you've got to get there. You've got to be worked there. You've got to move there. You've got to have the, the, the sin burned out of you, purged out of you over the period of perhaps who knows how long, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years. We, we don't know how long it's going to take. But if you die with imperfections on your soul, you go to this purging place for who knows how long. Does that sound like good news? No. Catholic Catechism again, quote, the church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. Again, they're getting the doctrine from church councils and from tradition here. Where is it in the Bible? We'll talk about that. Grudem says, believers who die go directly to heaven to be with Christ at once. I could, I could mention Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, to, to depart and be with Christ is far better. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, uh, to be absent from the body is to be burning in purgatory. That's not what he says. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with, excuse me, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise, not after a million years of purging. Okay, Catholic Answer says it like this. Look at the blue part here. To gain plenary indulgences. We're going to talk about indulgences connected to purgatory. Indulgences help you get out of there. To gain plenary indulgences, you must perform the act with a contrite heart, plus you must go to confession. One confession may suffice for several plenary indulgences. Receive Holy Communion and pray for the Pope's intentions. How about that one? The final condition is that you must be free from all attachment to sin, including venial sin. If you attempt to receive a plenary indulgence but are unable to meet the last condition, a partial indulgence is received instead. Do indulgences still happen today in Catholic theology? Yes, they do. Here's a list. This is from the Handbook of Indulgences, published in 1991. Uh, here, here, here's how you can get indulgences in Catholic theology. Uh, number one, an act of uh, spiritual communion expressed in any devout formula whatsoever is endowed with a partial indulgence. Uh, number two, a partial indulgence uh, is granted the church faithfully who devoutly, granted the Christian faithfully who devoutly spend time in mental prayer. So mental prayer will get you some indulgences. Number three, uh, a plenary indulgence is granted when the rosary is recited. Hail Mary, full of grace, etc. The Lord's Prayer, you pray to Mary more often, but then the Lord's Prayer is mixed in there. When the rosary is recited in a church or oratory, or when it is recited in a family or religious community or a pious association, a partial indulgence is granted for its recitation in all other circumstances. That's why, they, that's why there's a lot of Hail Marys. Number four, a partial indulgence is granted the Christian faithful who reads sacred scripture with the veneration do God's word and as a form of spiritual reading. The indulgence will be a plenary one when such reading is done for at least one half hour, provided other conditions are met. And number five, 
A partial indulgence is granted to the Christian faithful who devoutly sign themselves with the cross while saying the customary formula in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In summary, the practice of indulgences neither takes away nor adds to the work of Christ. It is His work through His body, the church, raising up children in His own likeness. I'm sorry, it does take away from, from the work of Christ. It, it absolutely does. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is the only text that there, you really have any shot of trying to argue for purgatory, and it's not there. It's a misunderstanding of this text. James White did like a three-hour debate with a guy on this text, whether it teaches purgatory, and I think James White does a great job showing that it does not. It's very obvious. I would never have thought this teaches purgatory. Still don't ever think it does. 1 Corinthians 3, according to the grace of God given me like a, master, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Uh, for no foundation can be laid other than that which is laid, which is, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation is the gospel. Now, anyone who builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each will become known. So these are good works, precious stones. Bad works would be wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will become manifest for the day. This is, again, the day of judgment. We'll disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test of what sort of work each has done. On the day of judgment, people building a church on the gospel foundation of Christ, the true gospel, some will build with better doctrine and teaching, gold, silver, precious stones, some with less good doctrine, teaching, wood, hay, and straw that will, that's not really true or good and it'll kind of burn up on the last day. So on the last day, those who preach, preach the true Jesus on the true foundation, they'll have some mixed theology of good and bad, and the final judgment will be a day of fire in which the bad will be burned away like dross and the good, the precious metals, will, 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 will survive the fire. And every pastor and every Christian is going to have false thinking that they had and things they taught that weren't exactly quite right. And we meant our best, but it wasn't just right. And that's going to get burned away on the last day, right? And other things will survive. This is not talking about a drawn out period of 100,000 years in purgatory. It's talking about what happens on the day, the day of judgment. It happens instantaneously. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. So the gold, silver, the good teaching and doctrine, will be rewarded. If anyone's work is burned up, bad teaching, bad eschatology, bad whatever view, you know, maybe you were wrong about baptism, baptismal modes as a Presbyterian or Baptist or whatever, those all just burn up. He will suffer loss. He won't get certain rewards that he would have gotten had he taught better doctrine, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And this is the verse that, that Catholics will argue teaches purgatory. So he suffers loss, he will be saved, but only as through fire. And they said, see, this is the doctrine of purgatory. No, this is not referring to someone in the intermediate phase before Christ returns, dying and being in a place of burning and purging where his soul is being purified over the course of 3 million years or 300,000 years, and eventually they're perfect enough to go be into God's presence. That's not what's saying. This is happening on the day, the final day of judgment, where every Christian's false teachings and less than perfect teachings will burn up in an instant. They will be rescued through the flames. They'll be saved because they have got the right gospel foundation, but they'll be only saved through the fire or through the flames. That is not purgatory. That's an instantaneous moment at final judgment. And then Paul says, you know that you're God's temple. God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. You are the temple. So of course, if someone builds on the wrong foundation and fundamentally destroys the church with a false gospel, they'll be destroyed in hell. He's not talking about that here. He's talking about someone who has imperfect theology versus someone who's actually destroying the church with, with her heretical theology. So if the Bible doesn't teach purgatory, nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the Old Testament, who teaches purgatory? Well, I'm glad you asked. Second Maccabees. 1 Maccabees tends to be a more generally reliable history about the Maccabean period in the 160s BC, and uh, the Feast of Hanukkah and all those things are there. Judas Maccabeus and his father and uh, brothers and their revolt against the king of Syria. Um, but look at this, 2 Maccabees, less reliable historically. Chapter 12, I won't read the whole, I'll just read part of this. 
So after a battle, people had died, Judas shows up. Here's what happens. They turned to supplication, praying that the sin that had been committed might be wholly blotted out. I believe this is referring to the sin of those who had died. I could be wrong about the context. I'm not as familiar with the second Maccabees as I, as I could be. Maybe I shouldn't be, but verse 43. He also, this is Judas, took up a collection. This is money man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver. So that's a collection of money, and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. And in context, it seems like he's providing for a sin offering for those who had died. Uh, and, and it looks like in a battle. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably taking account of the resurrection, because these people who died are going to one day be raised. And so he, he's providing a sin offering for those who will one day be resurrected. Verse 45, but if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who have fallen asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. There was collecting money to offer a sin offering for saints who had died in light of the resurrection was a, he's, they say here, a holy and pious thought. And then therefore, he, Judas, made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin. So they would argue that uh, you've got some kind of idea of sin affecting you in the afterlife. Even if you're a believer, you, you die with some sin. And so he pays money for a sin offering uh, to make atonement for the sins of the dead, that they might be delivered from their sin. Now, again, this is not biblical teaching. Many of the apocryphal books of both the Old and New Testament teach false and unbiblical things. You could do that with the apocryphal books of the New Testament, the false gospels, Gospel Peter, Mary, Magdalene. They teach all kinds of Gnostic false heresies from the second century AD. And you can look at the apocryphal books between the Old and New Testament, written between 400 uh, BC and maybe not that long before the birth of Christ. And they, they, they'll teach plenty of things that are not true. And this is one of them. The idea that paying money for a sin offering can help a saint out be delivered from their sins in the afterlife is not a biblical teaching. It's not taught in the Bible. It's not taught by anyone in the Bible. But that is a verse in the Catholic canon, and they will use verses like this and say this is the seed forms of a doctrine of purgatory and a doctrine of indulgences. All right, salvation number 12. People can be saved without hearing of Christ. People can be saved without hearing of Christ. This is a Catholic doctrine called inclusivism, I believe is the name. Uh, and, and even some Protestants hold to this, although it's a, it's, a, it's a dangerous and false teaching. Quote, the Catholic Catechism, those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and are moved by grace, try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their own conscience. Those too may achieve eternal salvation. Uh, Grudem says, the Bible gives us no grounds for believing this or encouraging uh, or, or, or encouragement to believe it. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then will they call on him of whom they had not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they had not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful on the mountain of the feet of those who bring good news. That's really fast. So it says here, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul says, how can they call if they haven't believed? And then he says, how can they believe if they've never heard? And then he says, how can they hear without someone preaching? And then he says, how can they preach unless they are sent? Do you see the order? So here it is. Saved. Let me get this smaller. Saved. Before saved, call. And believe goes right with that. Before believe, hear. Before believe, before hear, preach. Before preach, wow, I can't even, I'm left-handed here, I'm having issues. Sent. So, that's illegible. Someone is sent, a missionary, they preach. The preacher allows others to hear. Those who hear can believe, and as they believe, their life is transformed, they call, and it ultimately results in salvation. 
But, if they, but they won't be saved if they never call on the name of the Lord, Jesus, in this context. And they will never, never call on him if they don't believe in him. They won't believe in him if they don't hear about him. They won't hear about him unless someone tells them, and they won't tell them unless they are sent. So the point here is not that people who've never heard will be saved. The point here is that people who've never heard won't be saved. You're only saved if you call on the name of Jesus that you've believed in and heard about. So we better send people, how beautiful, on the mountains of the feet of those who bring good news. Let's send missionaries out because people need to hear this good news. But if they never hear it, they will never be saved. All right, we're getting near the end. We've got two left. The church, the Roman Catholic Church as the one true church. Catholic Catechism says, quote, the sole church of Christ is that which our Savior after his resurrection entrusted to Peter's pastoral care, commissioning him and the other apostles to extend and rule it. The church constituted and organized as a society in the present world subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. Grudem's response, quote, the true church is wherever the gospel is truly preached and baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly observed. That's right. The church, priesthood, number 14, the last one, priesthood as a necessary system for dispensing grace. Again, we've touched on this already. Catholic Catechism, quote, the ordained priesthood guarantees that it really is Christ who acts in the sacraments through the Holy Spirit for the church. The saving mission entrusted by the Father to his incarnate Son who was committed to the apostles and through them to their successors, they received the Spirit of Jesus Christ to act in his name and his person, and in his person. Grudem's response, quote, all God's people are now a kingdom of priests, 1 Peter 2.9, we're all a kingdom of priests and all minister grace to one another through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So in conclusion, is the Catholic Church genuinely Christian and are Catholics genuinely Christian? Answer, if one holds to the official teaching, this is, this is, my, this is my answer, all right? I need to get a bigger uh, mark here. If one holds to official Catholic teaching, one does not believe in the true gospel but a false gospel based on the unbiblical sacramental system and therefore is not a Christian. I believe that. So I, know, I believe a true Catholic, someone who says, yeah, I'm a Catholic and I believe what this book says. I, I, this is how I understand salvation, the sacramental system and all the things listed here about Mariology and all these different things. I believe that. That's what I believe. That's, how, that's my system of salvation. Then you're not a Christian. Then you, you're not a Christian. All genuine believers must flee the Catholic church and join a faithful church that teaches the true gospel. Catholicism is not biblically Christian. It is not truly Christian. Can a person who calls him or herself a Catholic be saved? Yes, but that means they're not really a Catholic. They've just misnamed themselves, and they need to get away from the Catholic Church. To quote here, Galatians 1, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, just, just notice this. He says here, that these people are quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. So you're deserting God when you do what? When you turn to a different gospel. So when you turn to a different gospel, you desert God, the triune God of the Bible, including Christ, the grace of Christ. So is the Catholic gospel the true gospel? No, the sacramental system is faith plus the works of the sacraments equals justification and maintaining justification. And that if you don't get all that taken care of when you die and you have the impurities on your soul, then you go through the fires of purgatory to get all the imperfections burned out of you over a course of who knows how long. And then if you're good enough, you can one day enter into God's presence. That's not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is that we are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And that's what Galatians 2 will say. When we get to Galatians 2, Paul says, he makes clear the controversy. What was the false gospel? He says, listen, we are justified by faith and not by works of the law. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law uh, comes knowledge of sin. I think I mixed in there a verse from Romans on that one. And then he says here, so, so look at this. 
the next verse. But even if we or an angel from heaven, I want to say, or the Pope, or a bishop, or a cardinal, or the magisterium, or sacred tradition, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be anathema. So a gospel contrary to the one Paul preached in the, in the Bible, let him be accursed. That's the same word that the, that the Council of Trent used, anathema. As we've said before, so we now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Same word. So I know it's not popular. I know it, gets over, it goes against over a billion people, but I would rather say what's in the Bible and be truthful to that than say what is popular or to say what people might like to hear. I know it's not pleasant to hear, but yes, the Catholic Church is a false apostate church. It preaches a false gospel, has a false system of authority. It has the wrong sources of authority. It, it adds to the Bible in a way that you should not add to the Bible with sacred tradition and the magisterium. Um, it has a sacramental system that is faulty. It has an understanding of grace transferred through physical objects that are blessed and holy by the bishops and priests that is not biblical. It's not true. The Bible never talks about God's grace being transferred through physical objects like that. And it does not believe in justification by Grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone learned about from the Bible alone. It rejects the soul as the Reformation. And I would say by rejecting the soul as the Reformation, uh, you are really rejecting the heart and soul of the biblical gospel. So one last time, Catholic Church believes in grace plus merit, faith plus the works of the sacramental system, the glory of God plus the glory of Mary and other saints, Christ plus other mediators, and Scripture plus tradition in the magisterium. We believe in Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, the glory of God alone. Thank you for watching.